0: Welcome to the Corporate Activist podcast. I'm your host, Siri Khalsa. We're really glad that you could join us today for our second episode. Today, we're going to be talking with Sydney Price. And Sydney is an award-winning executive and founder and CEO of The New Purpose. And The New Purpose is a conscious leadership company that guides leaders to create new revenue channels and profitability for their companies while integrating social and environmental benefits into their supply chain. Prior to this, she was Senior Vice President of Social Impact Global Merchandising at the Kate Spade Company and has held multiple leadership roles at Neiman Marcus Group as well. She has a degree in psychology and is an adjunct professor at Parsons School of Design. Sydney, thank you very much for joining us. Welcome to The Corporate Activist. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Sydney, um, I would love it if you could just start by introducing yourself a little bit to our audience and talking about your background and your history and how you got involved in social impact. Absolutely. Well, I think what I'll talk about a lot today is I have
1: always just followed my purpose and And that has evolved over time. But when I started my career, I did um, study psychology in in college. But when I got out, um, I realized I needed to get into a profession that really promoted my ability to travel internationally, understand different cultures. And also, I loved... um, handmade work. So I thought the fashion industry would be a perfect avenue to explore the world and and see what's out there. So after college, uh, I walked into Neiman Marcus for the first time. And 18 years
0: later, I walked out. Where did you, where did you grow up actually? And where did you, where did you study?
1: Yeah, my dad, um, was a naval pilot. And he so we basically uh, lived in Washington, D.C. when I was at the Pentagon. And also I lived in California uh, for most of my life growing up. And I went to college in San Diego. So I definitely have been a Navy brat and have lived in many different places. So you
0: weren't new to traveling and exploring new things?
1: (laughs) No, I not only was not new to that, but because I moved around 13 times uh, before I graduated from high school. I also uh, became very sensitive to being the outsider and always trying to acclimate and be part of. So I think that's also where I naturally became very interested in understanding the underdog, uh, especially within developing countries and try to
0: give that population voice. That's. I think it is true. Like for people who, um, who aren't sort of rooted in a place, like you do, you're always feeling a bit like an outsider and trying to kind of like find your way. And and I can see how that would make you want to relate to people who are also doing that. Absolutely, yeah.
1: And especially as
0: a child,
1: you know, you don't have a lot of decision making. You kind of follow your parents around. So it's also that sense of wanting to empower myself, um, and to be able to make my own decisions. Um, so I think that's been part of my, you know, they say in life, a lot of times we teach from our greatest wounds. And I think that was one of mine. Um, but it's also been one of my greatest assets
0: as I've kind of stepped into that. Yeah. Amazing. And so tell us a little bit about your time at Neiman Marcus. So what, what did you do there and and how, what was that like? Absolutely. So uh, I entered into their executive training
1: program as a merchant. And a merchant is essentially a business person um, that generally has a big budget um, to then manage um, buying multiple vendors spread out throughout the world. Um, So I started in uh, men's sportswear And, um, well, actually I started in the stores, which is great. You understand the consumer. Then I went to Dallas, Texas and and went into their executive training program, uh, went in men's sportswear and then ladies shoes. Um, but throughout there, um, I learned a lot. It was especially in men's sportswear. I traveled a lot back and forth to Asia, made all the product development for Neiman Marcus. And then for ladies' shoes, that was very fun because then I was exposed to all the fashion shows in Milan, Paris, and then also London. And then after I did this for many years, that's when I became... Uh, m- much more interested in taking side trips to more of the undiscovered places in the world than the big cities. So that's really how uh, my love of discovery of new culture started.
0: Hmm, wow. And so at Neiman Marcus, did you move from you move from there to Kate Spade? So basically,
1: um, the way Neiman Marcus works, it's actually very smart, is you can't, you have to go from the store to corporate, so you never lose track of wh- why you're doing this, which is the in-consumer. I also did a stint at Bergdorf Goodman, which is a sister company at Kate Spade. Um, but when I was at Bergdorf Goodman, my responsibility was uh, running the jewelry division and traveling out throughout the world. And at that point, my head and my heart uh, were not connecting anymore, that I achieved everything I thought I wanted to in my career, yet I had another half of my career. So this is when I started becoming very interested in, in particular, social impact. I didn't know much about it and how to implement it, Um, So I started this little side while working. I started this little side business called Mindful Deeds. And I started in India and started working with um, artisans within marginalized communities, um, trying to up level their uh, handicraft skills and then Uh, work with uh, big fashion companies to try to create, um, integrate them essentially into the global supply chain. So that's how it started. That was my own initiative because I had such a deep yearning after I'd traveled to 50 countries and seen so much um, injustices going on, particularly around women. Um, And because I had been exposed to the, fashion industry that I really wanted to make it work uh, for those um, that really were being
0: ignored within the world. You know, this was, I guess, before a little bit of the exposure that's happened around fast fashion and the the conditions in, in some of these places. Was there, were the companies thinking about this at all? Or was it really just kind of, we make our products and it doesn't, we don't think too much about how or who does it?
1: You know, at this point, I think it was early 2000s, and I think very few companies were thinking about it. I think only the most conscious brands were like Eileen Fisher, Patagonia. Um, but really, at this point, it was all about profit um, and And what's so challenging, because I know you've worked in a lot of developing countries as well, is the governments also don't necessarily promote their people. Many countries don't even have minimum wage. and. The greatest thing these country leaders want to do is promote exports. So there, there's really a huge disconnect um, between actually human rights and exporting in many countries. I, it's definitely gotten better because there's been more of a focus, but certainly in early 2000s, that wasn't going on a lot.
0: Right. And so when you went to Kate Spade, were you brought in to work specifically on corporate social responsibility or, or did it morph into that?
1: Uh, no, not at all. So after Kate Spade, um, I was approached by the CEO or excuse me, after Nima Marcus, I was approached by the CEO of Kate Spade to basically be his right hand man to be, um, to lead all the merchandising, direct to DTC is direct to consumer, which means to run all the stores, run their website. And the condition for me to do that job, because that's essentially what I've been doing in my career, was that I said I wanted them to integrate some sort of social impact that I had been doing on the side with Mindful D's within their own organization. And at that point, the founders, Kate and Nandy, had just sold the business. So the brand was much bigger than their PL. So he said, Absolutely. If you take the job as essentially chief merchant, we will uh, put you in charge of social impact within our organization. Um, but we're going to have to do it through a partner because we don't have the manpower. We really need to focus on, you know, getting our business right. And they, interestingly enough, they had just signed an exclusive contract with a nonprofit called, um, women for women international. And essentially, um, what they do is, uh, they help women in, um, torn countries, um, and shift them from crisis to stability. And it's a year program. Um, and that's how I started getting more for and I took the job with Kate, quite honestly, because I knew very little about international development at that point. But I had such a deep desire. So I figured I might as well learn on the job and get paid for it.
0: <laughs> right. And, and that's where we crossed paths, um, was in Afghanistan where we met for the first time, I guess it must've been 2011 maybe.
1: Yeah, no, it was amazing. So, um, we started our work with Women for Women International in Bosnia. And then the state department approached Kate Spade. They saw the work we were doing in Bosnia and they asked if we would go there, um, And so I took multiple trips there and that's definitely where I met you and Turquoise Mountain and the incredible work that you were doing there. Um, And then we shifted to Rwanda, but absolutely that's
0: where we met. Did you find that at that time the model was sort of like, we're we're doing our business, but we're going to try to do some good things to help some other people on the side, right? Like we're, it was almost... A bit of a still in that old CSR model where it's like, you know, we have a bit of a charity kind of program on the side that we run. Right. But you actually tried to and were successful into evolving that into something much different, um, specifically through the Rwanda program. So I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, we signed a, a relate, uh, exclusive relationship with women for women. And I love going to these countries. I love learning. Um, but at the end of our relationship and we mutually agreed, they wanted to be more like a Susan B Coman and have many, many partners. And I also, um, at that point we were much more profitable and we wanted to take our social impact w- within our organization. So we've learned a few very key things, or I learned a very few key things of how I didn't want to do it going forward and how it needed to shift. Um, one is that there was very little transparency. So what I mean by that is we had no idea how much the artisans were actually getting paid. Um, we had very little visibility on the actual margins. Um, our margins were not great um, there it, you know you just think of like a middleman so it wasn't like anyone was dishonest but there there was just too many people involved within the process. The other thing, you know we spent three years revitalizing the supply chain of Kashmir in Afghanistan. you know Afghanistan is the third largest producer of Kashmir yet most of it, illegally exits the borders uh, because they've been in war so long. So there there is no su- uh, supply chain there. So we work with the State Department to bring back the deherring machines to clean it. We taught women how to actually weave yarn from the cashmere and then to actually make goods.
0: So you had a few projects going in Afghanistan at the time, um, and you were at the time partnering with Women for Women, but also doing some work more directly, right?
1: Yes. So we were absolutely doing uh, work with Women for Women, um, and that which was more of the Cashmere Initiative. But we were buying beautiful stones that um, are indigenous to. Um, Afghanistan and putting them in stud earrings and selling them. And this is how we came across Turquoise Mountain and you. Um, but where the rub was really was our relationship working through a nonprofit. Um, so going back to our cashmere program, we'd been working on this for years. We're finally about to launch. And because it was such an unstable country at the time still, um, that we, they weren't able to actually ship out the goods until after Christmas. So everything we'd been working on. So this whole idea of like real business practices, deliver on time, you know, strong margins, all of those things, nothing really was panning out. And then the last thing we learned is our employees, which is so critical, this idea of having this real heart connection to something because it was working through something that they wanted to have more of a direct impact with whatever they were doing instead of working through a partner.
0: Right. And I think this is such a good point because, you know, working in certainly a post-conflict area, there were so many variables and I was on the other side of that, you know, trying to deliver this order to you. And I know that we, we faced multiple challenges. Um, everything from, you know, a lot of it had to do with quality control and being able to scale. Um, because, you know, even though the order wasn't huge, it was much. It was it was probably the biggest one that we had ever had. So we were, um, you know, really having to put in place a lot of um, new systems and and um, you know get all the materials and get everything done to try and meet a timeline, which um, you know was really necessary. Like it it was really great for the organization because it did, um, it did make us deliver in a professional way because we knew that, you know, you were promoting it on the other side, right. And you had a timeline. And so we were really trying to keep to that, but it was also a big step. It was a huge leap in terms of scaling and professionalism on our side. Um, and even those issues around transparency, you know, they're, Um, you know, there were certain standards and things that Kate Spade had that we wanted to make sure that we, you know, we met as well. And so, you know, I think for Turquoise Mountain as a time, it was really a great um, opportunity and we learned a lot from it. And I think it it gave us, it gave Turquoise Mountain um, confidence to then maybe try to, to work in that way going forward. But I think You learned some important lessons from that and, and like, what was possible and what wasn't possible. So, and which you then took to Rwanda. So, maybe you can tell us about that a bit.
1: Yes, thank you. So, I think the biggest thing is that we wanted to really operate as a business. And we knew whatever we did uh, in regards to social impact or corporate activism is that it needed to be fully integrated into our supply chain. So, after Afghanistan, we shifted and we're still working with Women for Women in Rwanda. And we really fell in, in love with the country for multiple reasons. Uh, first of all, there was um, after the genocide, there were so many women um, that needed a job and needed a leg up. Um, so also the government uh, was very pro-business. And we also knew we had to change a lot of trade laws. Um, so it was competitive because it's a landlocked country that we needed to really uh, work um, as a business. So essentially, um, once we ended our relationship with Women for Women International, we went throughout the country, which is not very big. Uh, It's actually out of, I believe, 54 countries in Africa, it's the smallest. Um, I would think there's around 11 million people, but most of the countries rule. So we went through all the country and we landed on this one village called Masaro and we loved it. And we loved it because they had a natural gift that they'd been doing for many years in embroidery. And it was beautiful, something that you would see at a v- very high-end boutique anywhere in the world. We also loved it because it was rural and we had we were trying to create a new model. Um, we were really trying to go in and prop up women, um, Rwandan women, uh, for this to be their business, not Kate Spade's business. And we also were creating a for-profit social enterprise. So the, the the profits from this business would get reinvested into their community, their business, and the women. So we were really there to help prop them up and to support them. So it was a huge difference from working in the old model, which was almost an aside, this old kind of CSR model of checking a box, like we felt good we were doing it, but were we really making a difference to really shifting it into our supply chain and to make it a for-profit social enterprise where absolutely everyone benefited.
0: Right. And that that's the kind of change that really makes it sustainable, because then it's not something that's done only when people are feeling like, Oh, we have extra time. We have extra money. We'll go help these people, but rather it's fully integrated. And it's a, um, it's not, not a decision that anyone has to make. It's just part of the supply chain, but at the same time is really having an impact on a, you know, a specific group of people. Absolutely. And just
1: as a side note, so often, um, fashion companies go into these communities and they say oh this is what we want to do for you and it's really the wrong approach so we use very much human-centered design working with the leaders within the communities of what do you need what do you want and their biggest thing is they needed employment they needed uh, economic stimulus so you know We really helped design a model um, that supported them and not what we thought they needed.
0: Yeah, which is one of the biggest lessons of development, I think, because um, we bring, as Westerners or people from the outside, let's say, we bring in our own logic, our own value system, our own sense of priority And often that's not what's needed. And, you know, and, and then we try to impose it and it doesn't work. And we, you know, (laughs) we start pointing fingers and, and I think, um, when you want to build something that will endure, um, it really has to have the ownership of the people who are, who are impacted by it. And so you actually ended up creating a whole case study around, that project um, so what were what were they actually making and how many women were involved and and how did how did that work so the community um, it's
1: the smallest country in Africa but it's also the most mountainous so uh, there were around 20,000 people within Masaro um, but everyone was integrated into all these mountainous so they had to walk so we open it up into the entire community Um, women and men, to see if they wanted to be part of this new social enterprise. And we received hundreds of candidates. uh, 99% were women. Um, And basically, the idea and what we created was a factory. Now, again, we were learning very much on the job as well. Kate Spade makes multiple classifications from ready-to-wear to handbags to accessories. Um, so initially um what we did is we put the artisans through s- sewing training and assess their skills. Then we helped form help them form their company. Um, but soon after we started making multiple products, we realized that we really needed to shift to one. Uh, our core competency were handbags. So we shifted just to do um handbags and Why we were able to do this, again, is we didn't just make it our social impact for our organization, but we reached out to all of our top um, handbag manufacturers in Asia and throughout the world. And it became their social impact program as well. So their employees um, that were actually experts and the technicians help us set up the machines, help us train our artisans. Um, organizations like DHL, they'd never come out to the rural areas. And because now we are creating a new business hub, it became theirs as well. And even, you know, testing materials is critical. Uh, you know, when we made our products, we ended up exporting into uh, seven different countries where our stores were. And there's so many regulations on making sure all the raw materials meet Um, global standards. So you have to test. So even our testing um, agent, uh, this became their CSR and their corporate activism. So it was like we were all building this thing together, which made it so much more fun. So again, everyone felt great about what they were doing. And I think the greatest thing was that And when you think of corporate activism is all of our employees had a direct relation. So if you were a designer, you were able to work with the artisans or if you were in logistics. And so they were using their expertise. So it was only 1% of their job working in this country and on this initiative, but it gave them so much joy. It helped so much with their level of satisfaction of working at Kate Spade. It helped uh, with retention. It helped with uh, recruitment. So I can't stress enough when it's an authentic uh, initiative, it it really is so amazing, not just for the organization, but the, the
0: employees within it. I mean, it's really interesting to see how successful they were able, you know, under your leadership to, to transform from you know, a CSR model that was kind of nice and you could kind of talk about, you know, as, as our little project that we do, but into something that's really changing lives, empowering people and, you know, is is meeting the goals of being integrated, transparent, you know, and, and really reverberating throughout um, everyone who's involved, which, you know, it's really remarkable. Thank you. You know, I
1: I had the desire and the in my heart and I saw the vision but I have to say this was co-created by so many people and I think you know I think it goes back to just having a life for purpose and we all deeply desire purpose and purpose within ourselves within our organization and within a community and um, it's just you can just be so successful in so many ways if you tap into them And is the is the factory still running now? Yes, it's thriving um, and it has multiple customers. Again, if you went there, you would never know. Uh, Kate Spade supported them um, because we really it was always about them and propping them up. And, and f- from a financial standpoint, how we did that is generally your margins are higher when you work directly. So we just took lesser margins for the first couple of years to help build buildings and build the infrastructure. But at the end of the day, because we were able to create trade laws, uh, for example, like a nylon handbag coming from China, the duties would be between 19, you know, 17 and 20 percent. But because we were able to use a Goa and GSP, uh, shipping at the same bag out of Rwanda was zero. So you were able to pick up a lot of those and make it much more business competitive that way.
0: I'd love to move on a little bit to, you know, where we are now, because, you know, you've been in this, um, in this business a while. And, um, I'd love to talk a little bit about where you think, the future of corporate activism is going particularly in fashion and you know we know that um it's one of the you know one of the chief um contributors to um to co2 emissions and we know that um there's there's a lot of things with fashion that have to be dealt with and but we you know but we also do see some great innovation coming out as you know from leaders of the industry as you mentioned like patagonia and eileen fisher and and even the work that, that Kate Spade is doing in some other brands. So, and, and also, you know, you're uh, teaching at the Parsons School and I imagine you're working with, with young people and, and their approach to, to this kind of thing is probably different than, you know, people looking at it 20 years ago. So I'd love to hear a little bit about where you think, you know, we're going from here. Yeah.
1: It's so interesting. I think social media has changed the landscape for all of this. I think, first of all, when you think of ESG criteria and what the current situation is, I think if you're a conscious company, you're trying to do the best job you can. But just know no company in the entire world is 100% sustainable. It's just not feasible. So I think the first and foremost is a company needs to get very clear on living their values and what those things are. And for us, just going back to Kate Spade, you know, our core competency was handbags and manufacturing handbags and selling it. So like, what is that? So, so I think first of all, a company conscious enough to slow down and be ask themselves, the hard questions and get focused and not try to be all things to all people. I think second of all is Unfortunately, it really depends on if you are a public company or a private company. If you are a private company, like a Patagonia, Eileen Fisher, and uh, many other amazing brands, you can take more chances. Um, you don't have to be reporting out every three months. If you are going to make a shift in using organic cotton versus regular cotton. That might lower your margin temporarily, but it's going to have a huge positive impact on the environment. Um, you know, I think a great example is what just happened to Disney a few months ago um, is, you know, they tried to do the right thing and it really backfired uh, on multiple levels. So a lot of public companies are very, very, very scared to speak out. Um, and that doesn't mean they shouldn't, it just means they have to be that much more thoughtful that they can't be all things to all people and they can't speak up about all things and they have to get very focused, uh, and very much kind of the work you are doing on getting clear on what they want to talk about and, and really take a stand on that. And I think when you get very clear, on what you want to believe in, then anything is possible. I think so many um, things or things to talk about pop up every day, and you you just can't. And that's where I think companies get into trouble.
0: Yeah, and and I think also, um, you know, looking at what impact they can have, you know, and not as you say, not trying to be everything to everyone, but saying, you know, what's our supply chain? What is our you know, who are our real stakeholders and how can we impact that? And I know you're working with um, a company now in Mexico, and I'd love to hear how they're approaching some of these issues. Absolutely. Um, they,
1: um, they very much are a startup or were a startup. They're called someone somewhere and they're based out of Mexico city. Amazing. There's three founders, just amazing group. And, um, Since they were in high school, there is a criteria for all students to do um, basically social impact work in high school and in college. And actually the government promotes it. So since they were in high school, they've known each other since they were four. They were going to some of the most marginalized communities in um Mexico. So when they got graduated from college, they came back together and they formed a business to work with these communities and these artisans and do similar work that I was doing in Africa and integrate uh, their work into their supply chain. So again, not making them employees, but really helping integrate them into their supply chain and give them credit. And so they were very much focused on social impact. Uh, they are a B Corp. They, I believe they've been a B Corp since 2017. And then of November of this year, uh, they became the first Mexican manufacturing brand to be climate neutral certified. So yeah, they're doing amazing
0: work. One of the the things that I want to do with the podcast is to be able to give some advice to listeners, you know, to, to kind of pick the brains of, of our guests and people who've been in this a while for people who are starting out and as we're getting started, there were sort of two questions that came up. Um, So one is, you know, just sort of in cultural appropriation, um, you know, what do you see anyone now who's approaching this with what you think is the right way? Because, um, you know, it's been going on forever. We know this, right? And sometimes it's not always done in a malicious way, but we see that, you know, designs, patterns, materials are, are, you know, one day you'll see it on a a Gucci, you know, model or something and, and it's not really, um, connected to where it came from. So is there anyone who you think is taking the right approach to this or how, you know, how do you respond to, you know, this, this idea of cultural appropriation and and intellectual property for artisans?
1: It's, it's a, big nut to crack um it really is and interestingly enough a couple of months ago um ralph lauren launched these um kind of shawls or srirachas and um the first lady of mexico is suing ralph lauren because it's been a pattern their country has had for hundreds of years um so it's and of, they're amazing organization, so it wasn't. It, it certainly was not. But to your point, like even the best of the best companies sometimes are not making the best choices and thinking of those things. I think. I think a great example or is the the work that I've been trying to do is take what artisans do, and love to do, but integrated into someone's supply chain, so don't take their independence away. Don't try to own anything. Give them credit, um, up-level their skills, give them access to the global supply chain. But I think the biggest thing is to tuck them away and take credit for it. It just doesn't work anymore, and it doesn't work for them. It And certainly the consumer is getting so savvy. Um, So I think the consumer wants, and I think this is where it goes back to transparency. The consumer absolutely wants to know. Right. They want the authenticity. Yes, they do. And they want to have that heart connection with the artisan. And it doesn't take away from the brand. It actually elevates the brand.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because you know, i found in in my work with artisans, like I, if I'm wearing a a piece of jewelry or something, like I love to tell the story of that, you know, I love to say, you know, I know who made this (laughs) and, you know, and, and to share their story. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's much more powerful than saying, Oh yeah, I got this done at Zara or something, (laughs) something like that. But to really say, no, you know, um, I know, you know, someone who, who actually spent their time working on this. And and in some cases, you know, how long they spent, you know, days and days making something. And oh, God, yes. When you're saying this, I'm just thinking so much, just the
1: quality. I mean, we make it someone somewhere makes this t-shirt and they make this hand embroidered pocket and the pocket will last a hundred years you know, the t-shirt will not. So it's just so
0: interesting. Handwork really does. It's just exquisite. Yeah. I mean, that that's certainly something that I've gained a, a huge appreciation for just in the work that I've done over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years of working with artisans. It's when you have something that's handmade, um, it just has a different vibration. You know, you feel, you can really feel the the heart, the story, the you know, that, and you feel a connection to the, to the maker. And for me, it just makes it so much more, um, powerful to, to be part of that. So Sydney, you've been great with your time. Um, I really appreciate the conversation. What I'm, what I'd like to do is end by asking you two questions, <laughs> which we will continue as a tradition going forward. Um, so the first one I would just love a recommendation from you, um, of a favorite book or podcast or anything, you know, you're particularly enjoying at the moment that's, you know, people might also like to, to tap into. Absolutely. So
1: I am reading a book I have read many times, but it, every time I read it, I I pull something different and it's called prisoner of our thoughts. And it's really Viktor Frankl's principles for discovering meaning, uh, in life and work. And as many of your listeners probably know, uh, Victor was a neurologist and psychiatrist, and he founded the field of logotherapy. And really it is the, uh, it's, it describes the search for life's meaning as the central human motivational force. Um, and it sat, uh, alongside, um, this other schools in uh, Vietnamese, uh, a psychology of Freud and Adler. Um, but it really goes back to our thoughts, create our realities. And if we change our thoughts, we can change our reality. And I have been so passionate about finding my purpose in my life. And and now that I've been working for so long, I understand how purpose, if you can integrate your own purpose within the company and the community, there's just such a sense of
0: meaning and work life. So I highly recommend that book. Amazing. That sounds great. I haven't read that, so I'm, I'm going to check that out. <laughs> sounds great. And then our final question is, I love to give our guests a chance to give a shout out. So, you know, if you have a favorite vendor, a favorite brand, someone that you think is doing like really great work out there, um, we'd love to be able to promote them, give a link. Yeah. I
1: mean, I'm such a huge fan of Patagonia. I just think they're the leaders in this space. Uh, they take so many bold moves. They are they they were leading this space 30 years ago and and now with the founder essentially turning his business over, he's now leading it again. Um, so I just I can't they, in so much courage in what they're doing. So a big call out to them and I'd also give a big call out to the company someone somewhere, because um, they too are doing some great work in the world. Yeah. And how old are those founders? Uh, I think they're all 30. So they, they're really conscious leaders making a big difference, uh, not only within their own country, but the world. So I couldn't be more proud of them.
0: Well, Sydney, um, you have been uh, a fabulous guest. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being here with you thanks so much for joining us on the corporate activist podcast. Please do subscribe. You can also find us on Twitter and on Instagram at the corporate activist podcast, and we'll hope you'll come back for future episodes. I'm your host Siri Kalsa. Ciao for now.